Please bow once more for prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come now to your word, Lord, I pray that that which is perfect, which is your word, would anchor itself in our hearts, that we would tether ourselves to it, that it might have its work cutting as well as healing. Lord, I pray that all the other things of the day will be passed out of our mind, whether things of yesterday or things of this afternoon or this week. Lord, help us to be present here, heart, uh, mind, and body. And Lord, may your spirit work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 18. I will begin there in verses 21 uh, through 35. And then also we'll turn to Genesis chapter 50. So these, please be prepared to uh, make that adjustment. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and had him put in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to you, to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And now also from Genesis chapter 50. Verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? 
As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about the saving of many people. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. May God bless and add to the reading of this word. Amen. So first off, Andy has like a hundred reading glasses back here. <laughs> and I left mine in the car and I got here. It's like, well, actually, these look better than the ones I have. So if, if, his, if, he, looks, if he looks familiar, it's not Andy. Um, it is I. Um, and so who am I? Uh, real quick, I'm, uh, this is not really germane to the sermon, but uh, some introduction. So I'm Chaplain Anderson. Uh, Will, please call me Will. Um, I'm an ARP minister. I've pastored in... Troutman, North Carolina, for almost five years before uh, becoming an Army chaplain, and then we moved to Washington State, and then Kansas, and then Alaska, and just got here a few months ago. And so this has been our first opportunity in 10 years to worship in an ARP church, and it's been uh, really wonderful to do so. And God has blessed uh, wherever we've gone that we've been able to sit under some very gifted uh, preaching, and I have to tell you that... uh, Andy Webb is no exception. He's a very skilled expositor, and I've enjoyed it uh, very, very much. Um, So I can make you this absolute guarantee that after today's sermon, your appreciation for Andy will only grow. Um, So it's really a win-win. If I do well, great, but, you know, otherwise, uh, bring, we want Andy, Um, and and he shall return. Um, The other thing that's been really uh, interesting to, to see and to experience is, Andy drinking tea. Uh, I wasn't expecting that, to have tea up here. And then last week, I think he had water. Um, So I have coffee, um, (laughs) black coffee, made in America, um, with cream and sugar. But black coffee was at one time a part of that. So if I'm drinking it, I'm just trying to stay awake during the sermon. So with that, let's, let's get to work. So as we look at the parable in the Gospel of Matthew, there are two things I want to point out uh, from the very beginning. One, the clarity of this parable. Have you ever read a parable or another saying of our Lord and honestly looked at it and said, I, I don't know what this is about? There's quite a few. And other parables where the meaning is not so clear, our Lord takes a moment and explains who's who. That is utterly absent in this parable. The clarity is crystal. And for a little additional clarity, we are the first servant. We're not the second servant who just owes a a pittance. We are the servant with an enormous debt. And of course we know who who the master is. It is the Lord. So the clarity is, is again, cannot be mistaken. There's another part of it that we don't see in a lot of other parables. There is a heart-stopping promise where when the, second, the first servant has been thrown into prison until he should pay off the debt and is called a wicked servant, the Lord then adds this, adds, adds this, so it will be for each of you who does not forgive from his heart. Now, folks... That is a scary, it's not just a threat, it's a promise of what will take place. So the issue of forgiveness in the life of a Christian is enormous. So much so, consider this, that 
when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray, there's only one element of that prayer that is in any way horizontal. So when Jesus instructs us to pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus could have said, and you be merciful as, you've been, as mercy has been shown to you. Or be gracious and kind as grace and kindness has been shown to you. He doesn't say those things. He specifically points out forgiveness. And as part of one of the things that, that we have to do as army chaplains is to understand and know a thing or two about other religions. And they don't really do that much in seminary, right? You go to Erskine Seminary to learn how to, to be a minister in the ARP church. You don't really spend a lot of time learning about other faiths. And I can tell you other faiths, the, the issue of forgiveness is not near the level of importance as it is in Christianity. If you forgive, okay, but you're not really commanded to. But here in, in the scriptures, we have that very, very plain. So let's start in verse 21. Peter says, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many or up to seven times? Now, Peter knows from the previous saying of Jesus that forgiveness is something that we ought to be doing. If a brother sins against you uh, and he's willing to, to be challenged on the matter and repent, then you, you need to forgive him. So forgiveness is in the mind of Peter. And he says, well, how, much, how many times should I do this? As if he's falling into the uh, rabbinic tradition of seven being the number of perfection or completion. So how many times should I forgive? Up to or as many as seven times, but not eight. <laughs> On the eighth one, forget about it. But I'm willing to go up to eight. If that were the case, we would all keep count, right? Or do we keep count? If we're honest, do we really keep a record of wrongs? I do. Some of you on four. No. Um, but we do, we tend to keep count. And we absolutely would. If Jesus said, yes, no more than, no more than seven. We would absolutely keep a detailed record of wrongs. Because frankly, forgiveness really goes against our nature. And our nature is what? Sinful nature. It goes against our DNA to forgive. Perhaps Peter wants to be generous. But they were not as prone to forgive an intentional and unrepentant offense as you and I are. If you have someone that you work with, someone you serve with, maybe someone in your family, and they have done something intentionally and have not repented, we're, you're, we're no more prone naturally to forgive than anybody else is. And then Jesus answers him and blows this number out of the water. Not seven but 70 times 7. So Peter then, Jesus throws out 490. Now, was Jesus saying, but not 491? <laughs> he wasn't doing that either. The idea is you're going to forgive, and you're going to forgive again and again and again. This is the posture of a disciple. So he begins to tell this parable of a king or a master who went to sell accounts with his servant, and one owes. 10,000 talents. And one of my favorite commentaries, the William Henderson commentary, said that that amount was $10 million. 
But folks, when he wrote that was in 1973. Have finances changed since 1973? Indeed they have. So, let's refresh the math. And by the way, I, I don't like math. I never did well in math. And, but uh, if that's your struggle, um, teenagers, let me tell you, there wasn't a summer that went by that I wasn't doing remedial math somewhere. Okay, so if you're struggling with math, key part, you too can be an ARP pastor. Um, so here we go. One talent is worth about 6,000 denarii. One denarii is about a day's wage. So for a day laborer, let's just say $10 an hour. Does that sound fair to you? About 10 bucks an hour. For an eight-hour day, $80. Times 6,000, which is the amount of denarii for one, one talent, is $480,000. And how many talents does the servant owe? 10,000. So if you have, are some of you doing math right now? She is doing math right now. So if you have 480,000 is one talent times 10,000, according to my math, that is $4,800,000,000. Or 60 million days of labor. If you started the work the day you were born, every day, and died at 85, that's only 31,000 days. You have a ways to go. Or that's 1,933 lifetimes. Not adjusting for inflation or interest. (laughs) So the idea is what? When is this debt being paid? Never. Never. It can't. Now, you might ask the question, how did this servant possibly get this debt? That's, that's not the issue. That's not the point. Jesus gives them a number that they can't even begin to calculate, and neither can we. We really can't imagine trying to pay back a sum like this because he's really talking about our sin, and we absolutely cannot do it. So the king orders that he and his wife and children and everything he sold Uh, Everything he has is sold to pay towards the debt, which is futile. It's more punitive. It's not going to really gain anything back. So the servant falls on his face and pleads with the king for mercy, promising ridiculously that he'll pay it back. And miraculously, the king actually has pity on the man and forgives him. He walks away from the king or the master A free man from this debt. We can't even begin to understand this. Except for considering our forgiveness from God, from our sins. And what does he do? He goes out on this wonderful day and finds a servant who owes him 120 denarii and begins to grab him by the neck. So how much money does he owe? Well, about $80 a day times 120 is only $9,600. And for that, he grabs a servant by the neck, choking him, despite the servant pleading with him, begging for him, and has him thrown into prison until he should be tortured and repay the debt. As you can imagine, this was startling. So let's pause for just a moment here in in this parable, and let's turn for a minute to a man who knew something about being in prison. Now, Joseph's family is about the worst family in all the Bible. Maybe David's comes close. But this is a wicked family. 
full of deceit and lies from the very beginning of Jacob all the way through. It never ends. When when counselors and Christian uh, therapists want to talk about family trauma, they have a case study beauty right here. It's absolutely horrible. Beginning in chapter 37, and I'm going to try to really hit the high points, but bear with me for a few minutes. And the other thing is this. There are a number of remarkable similarities to the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. Remarkable similarities. But let's be clear. Joseph was a son of Adam. He is as flesh and blood as you and I are. One of the benefits of the, taking the biblical languages in seminary, and by the way, full disclosure, uh, not only did I struggle with math, I had to retake uh, Greek because uh, I had a hard time with it. But one of the benefits of biblical uh, studies is that you have to slow down. You cannot race through the language. And oftentimes when we're reading a passage, do we go quickly or do we go slow? We go quick. Slow down and see what's there. So I'm going to point out a few things that perhaps you've not heard before. It's a little bit of interpreter's license, uh, but I do believe I'm being faithful to the text. If you have questions about it later, uh, please talk to Andy. (laughs) So let's start with the traumatic events. Beginning in chapter 37, at 17 years of age, Joseph goes out to see his brothers. Now at this point, Joseph has developed a nickname. His nickname is the Dreamer. Why? Because he's had these dreams, one of these um, stalks of wheat and of stars, where the stalks and the stars represent his brothers, his family, who all bow down to him. Who's the youngest except for Benjamin. This is ludicrous. This is not how this works. Even the father and the mother do so. Now Joseph loves that dream. Or at least he's not shy to share it with them. So he's going out to to see his brothers at the direction of his father. And when they see him coming from a long way, he's easy to spot because he's wearing what? Multicolored robe. Do they have multicolored robes? No. Are they the favored son of Jacob? No. Do they really hate and despise their brother? Absolutely. So they see him from afar off. And they say, here comes the dreamer. And they plan to, plan to murder him. This is going to happen. This is the level to which their hate and their, their despising of Joseph has come to. So they grab him. They throw off the robe. They throw him into a, a pit, a, a deep cistern that has no water. And they begin to sit down and eat. That's probably one of the most more disturbing points of the story, actually. While he's down there crying for mercy, begging for his life, they have lunch. And they're hearing him and they're plotting. And then all of a sudden, Judah, he's such a wicked man, probably with his mouth full of food, says, you know, it's senseless to kill him. At least we could, if we sold him to slavery, you just have some money. My goodness. That's exactly what they do. By providence, there happens to be a caravan of Ishmaelites, Midians, um, who are actually distant relatives of theirs. And they said, let's sell them. And for pieces of silver, sound familiar? 
He is sold to them. There's a psalm that I've overlooked a number of times, Psalm 105, verses 17 through 18, where it says, Joseph was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Imagine this for a second. In the, in the, the span of a day, you've gone from the countenance of your father whom you love and who loves you to going out to your brothers who you already have some, probably some fear and trepidation of. Your treasured robe is stripped from you. You are sold into slavery and irons are put on your feet and neck. And he probably didn't ride a camel or a donkey all the way to Egypt, folks. He likely walked. Can you imagine the blisters? Can you imagine the cuts that are forming on him as he's making his way and going, how did this happen? Why is this happening? He's sold as a slave. He's taken down to Egypt. He's sold to Potiphar. Joseph serves him faithfully. God's blessings and favor are on him. All that, that Joseph did, everything he touched inside the house, outside the house, flourished and grew. Have you ever had trouble with a garden? Not Joseph. You ever trouble with your, with your budgeting? Not Joseph. God, get, gave, God blessed him gave him favor, everything he did worked well. But still, he was a slave, and he shouldn't be. His brothers had sinned terribly against Joseph. Then after years, a few years, Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph of sexual assault, which in all likelihood for a slave in Egypt was what? A capital offense. But nevertheless, He's put into confinement. By the way, one of my positions as a chaplain was as the, the, the um, maximum security prison uh, at Leavenworth. Um, therefore, those uh, with sentences from 10 years up to death. And there was one uh, in particular who, so if you confess to your crimes, if you admit it, you are able to have access to other programs, whether it is educationally, counseling, but also their work details. If you do not confess to that, you will be given a mop and you make about a nickel an hour, something like that. Whereas you work in these other shops, you can make 2 or $3 an hour, which to us sounds ridiculous, but in the, in the prison, that's money. And this one prisoner refused to admit to his crimes. He said, I did not do this. And for, I think it was seven years, he had been in there. When I, when I got to know him, it was around seven. By all accounts, good and faithful man came to chapel each Sunday, Bible studies, model inmate. And then one day, I'm on post, I go into a prayer breakfast, and this young man comes to me in a uniform. He says, hey, chaplain, I bet you think to see, you'd see me here. And you ever do that moment where your brain is calculating and it's like, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? And I'm feeling bad. He's got a, he's got a name for heaven's sake and a rank, but nothing is computing. And he goes, oh, well, as of Friday, I was wearing brown. I was an inmate. And I went, that's you. What are you doing in a uniform? And he said, my accuser took back her claim. I never did it. She made it up. 
That's why I would never confess. I never did it. Now, folks, he got mega back pay. <laughs> but is it worth it? No. How many friends and family members do you think he lost due to that? So here you have Joseph in prison. Does he belong there? No. Who does? Potiphar's wife. But there he is. By providence, he's there. But also God's hand is gracious to him uh, there as well. So much so that the head in charge of the prisoners leave everything in charge uh, to Joseph. Which, by the way, working in a prison is crazy. That's literally the definition of the inmates are running the, the, the prison. But he entrusts everything to Joseph. He trusts him perfectly. But he still shouldn't be there. After a number of years, you remember the story, the baker and the cupbearer are put into prison. Joseph faithfully interprets the dreams. The baker uh, is executed. The cupbearer says, I'll remember you, Joseph. Does he remember Joseph? No. So now he's in prison, falsely accused and actually forgotten by the one person who could speak to Pharaoh and get him his freedom. So he has to stay. But then, as you know, Pharaoh had dreams, and the cupbearer goes, I have a guy. I know who I can call upon. Joseph comes. He faithfully interprets the dreams. And now he's taken out of prison. Joseph was 17 when he left Canaan. He's now 39. So this is what I mean by we, we read too quickly. 22 years has passed. The last robe that he wore was a multicolored, beautiful robe. And now he wears the robe of the second command of Egypt. That's quite a robe change. In the years between Joseph, Joseph's rise and the coming of his brothers, I want you to think on this. How many times did Joseph return home? He never did. Think about that for a moment. You've got your freedom. You have your power. You have every means available to you. Pharaoh, I'd like to take leave. What do you think Pharaoh's response would have been? Okay. We put in for leave all the time. Even generals do. And they get it. Or at a minimum, he could have sent an ambassador or an emissary to go find his family. It wouldn't have been this hard. It was a well-traveled road. They know where everybody is. But Joseph never goes home, never asks to go home, and never sends anybody to go find his father, at a minimum, to find his father. Never does. In chapter 41, verse 45, Joseph is given a new name, the language of which is Egyptian, which I shall not utter here. He is married to... By the way, I messaged Andy saying I have two Lord of the Rings or Hobbit references. He was really excited about that. <laughs> His wife is Egyptian. Again, hit the pause button. When you got married, were your, was your family there? Sure. Were your friends there? Of course. It was a celebration. So all these people are gathered. I mean, were weddings a big deal in the ancient world? Yes! Just like they're a big deal now. But i got to tell you, I really like how they did it back then. 
They did it for weeks. I think we should go back to that. I don't want to pay for that, honey, though. I really don't. Where's Joseph's family? How does he explain that? Did everyone say, hey, where's Joseph's? We don't, we don't ask about that. Oh, okay. Maybe he told them, I don't have any brothers. Did he, t- did he make up a story? What did he say? Where are his friends? The only person I can think of that may have been there to celebrate with Joseph was actually the, the Egyptian jailer. That's the only person I can think of. It's probably not Potiphar. Who else is coming? Who else is there for Joseph? Nobody is. On a day of celebration. In this span of time also, he has two sons. What are their names? Manasseh. Notice what Joseph says regarding Manasseh's name. It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. What is he saying? I, rem- I name this son in memory that I'm forgetting all of my troubles, which he speaks in a general term, doesn't talk about his slavery or his imprisonment, but then very specifically says, and all my father's household. Folks, he is putting that entirely behind him. I don't blame him. Second child, Ephraim. Is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Folks, in this, the naming of his children, the memory of his suffering is always just under the surface. And at this point, Joseph is entirely fruitful and blessed by God. He seems to actively push all his painful past behind him with no thought of returning to see them. Now, when people are given a new role, New clothes, official uniform, new names. They always form a new what? Identity. Join the army. You're given a uniform, a rank. What's your first name? No one knows each other's first names, by the way. It's hilarious. Unless they you know, live together. But you're forming a new identity. You're a soldier now. You're an NCO or you're an officer, or you're a Marine. All of these things trump your former identity. You have a new identity now. And at this point, Joseph has spent more of his life in Egypt than he ever did in Canaan. Joseph, I believe, has done the same with no intention of returning home. And if you thought Bilbo Baggins was surprised to see dwarves at his door, you can imagine the shock that Joseph is about to have. In chapter 42, his brothers arrive to buy grain. They don't recognize him. But Joseph recognizes them, but his initial reaction is to conceal his identity and speaks harshly to them using an interpreter. And then it says, then he remembers his dreams. Folks, he had pushed so much behind him that he even forgot what? The dreams. The dreams that God had given him, that even his father was reflecting on. These things are crucial. Most of the things that we know about Joseph, remember from Sunday school, the flannel graphs and everything? There's always the dreams. 
Folks, he'd forgotten about all of that. And now all of a sudden his, his brothers are falling before him. He maintains his, his identity as an Egyptian. I mean, think about it. He could have easily taken the headgear off, taken the eye mascara or whatever Egyptians were always wearing, and said, it's me, Joseph. He doesn't do that. He maintains the concealment, speaks harshly through an interpreter, and gives them a false accusation. Does that sound familiar? How do you like it? And he maintains this. The, 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 the brothers say, no, 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 we're not spies. We're brothers who have come down to buy grain. We are honest men. I think that's my favorite part. <laughs> They've been lying to Jacob for 22 years about what happened to their brother. It's been heartbroken. Lying to Benjamin as well. And they say, we are 12 brothers. The youngest is with our father and one is no more. No doubt these words stung Joseph and he repeats this false accusation two more times even though he knows they're not spies. They're shepherds. They're herdsmen. They're not spies. They have no interest in any gain in Egypt other than to go and buy grain. So he puts them all in confinement. After three days, he brings them out and says, one's going to stay. It's going to be Simeon. Go and bring back uh, your younger brother. And if he comes back, then I'll know that you're not spies. Which again, of course, he already knows. So the sons of Jacob have returned to Canaan. And now, after probably staying, I think, close to six months, because they stalled, Jacob stalled, they get Benjamin, they bring him back. So after receiving them, dining with them, and loading them with supplies, Joseph is again going to falsely accuse, but this time it's different. The other cherished son of Jacob, who is uh, Joseph's blood brother, is Benjamin. And Benjamin is going to be put in the crosshairs of slavery. By the way, an interesting read is this. After Joseph goes down to Egypt, the passage actually stops with the Joseph narrative and dwells on Judah. Study that passage. Judah is a wicked man in this point in his life. It's very interesting. One goes to Egypt and one goes, it seems, to Sodom. Nevertheless, he's going to put his silver cup placed in Benjamin's food sack. And he's going to use this silver cup to test to see if they are still wicked men and will leave Benjamin in Egypt or if they will do righteously. So you can imagine the silver cup is placed in. They leave. Joseph says, go get them. One of them has stolen my silver cup. They go. The brothers go, we haven't stolen anything. In fact, I tell you what, search our bags, search our things, and then whoever is found uh, with the silver cup, that person will be held accountable. Now, what had the brothers promised Jacob would happen to Benjamin? Nothing's going to happen to Benjamin. We'll take care of him. We know he's your cherished son now. We'll protect him with everything. In fact, one of them said, if something happens to him, you can kill two of my sons. Again, the wickedness continues with this family. Nevertheless, so they start with the oldest, 
Silver cup, no. Silver cup, no. Silver cup, no. All the way down to Benjamin, where they find the silver cup. And at this, all the brothers tear their clothing and begin in grief and mourning. And you can imagine the long road back to Joseph's house. So, as we pick it up, Joseph accuses them and says, What have you done? This person is going to pay, and he is going to be my slave. The rest of you can go. What takes place right now is Joseph takes them back to the cistern of Genesis 37. They have an opportunity to once again, how did the silver cup Benjamin? Can you imagine him on the way back? I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Well, Benjamin somehow ended up in your sack. Once again, Jacob is going to suffer. Once again, we have a young brother that just doesn't get it. They had the opportunity to leave him alone and return to home fully supplied. What will they do? So I want to pick this up in chapter 44 because it really is uh, remarkable. And again, I want you to remember, Judah previously was about as wicked as they come. So Judah sees what's taking place and picking up in verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word of my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you like Pharaoh are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left to his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down here with you, you shall not see my face. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. When our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We can't go down. If our younger brother isn't with us when we go down, and, and for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I shall never see him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to you, you will bring my gray hairs down and evil to Sheol. Bear in mind, these are words that Joseph's never heard before. He never got to hear what was told to Jacob in the first place. Now he's hearing this for the first time. Now therefore, as soon as I came to your servant, my father, the boy and the boy isn't with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, 
As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Now again, pause. Go back to the cistern. When Joseph is down in the cistern and he hears someone say, why should we kill him? Let's sell him, at least make some money. Whose voice is he hearing? Judah's. And now Judah is pleading with everything in his soul and body. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Can you believe what's taking place? Now, I do not think that Joseph had this test in mind when all of this first began, when the, when the brothers showed up. I think this is something that gradually took place in the mind of Joseph. I think that his initial reaction was everybody's just what, what we would expect. But Joseph wants to see, am I going to rule over wicked men as their master, or am I going to still rule over them, but I'm their brother? How's this going to play? So he puts it before them. He has this response from Judah. And he says to them three times in this passage, God sent me here, not you. I know you think you sent me here, but this was God's doing. God's hand was behind this the whole time. And then he spoke words of comfort to them, Load them back up with their supplies. And I love this. He says to them as they leave, he says, and don't quarrel on the way. I love that. What a brotherly thing to say. And don't fight on the way home. Everything's okay. We're coming for you. And you can imagine the surprise when, when Joseph ends up telling Pharaoh, as it turns out, I have brothers and the family. They're actually back in Canaan. And what does Pharaoh say? Go get them. What have you been waiting for? Tell them just to leave everything they have. Don't even bring it. Because the best of Egypt is about to be theirs. Now let's fast forward to chapter 50. Their father, Jacob, has died. And now Joseph's brothers, out of fear that he's going to take his revenge for their wickedness, they concoct again a lie. I mean, can't you just hear this? These are grown men. Come on, men. Be men about this. But what do they say? As it turns out, you weren't there for this, Joseph. But just before Jacob died, our father, he said for us to tell you to forgive us for what we did to you. Be men. You can do better than this. And it broke Joseph's heart 
Because at this point, they've been in the land of Goshen for several years. And they've known the kindness of Joseph and the provision of Joseph. And Joseph responds to them saying, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And this is key. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted and spoke kindly to them. This story is remarkable. The, the story of Joseph Lice take up, takes up 20% of Genesis. And he's not even a patriarch. It's remarkable the amount of time that's given to this. It's full of lies, deceits, false accusations, suffering by everyone. It's very interesting, by the way, that when Joseph speaks harshly to them, they begin speaking and saying, this has come upon us because of what we did to Joseph. They recognize it immediately. So while Joseph has tried to forget everything, his brothers have been unable to. This has been on their minds constantly. Forgiveness can be hard. It can be hard. Especially when that transgression is done by a family member, uh, a close friend, or someone who is in a, a position of trust. It's just difficult. And especially if it should happen again and again and again, just like what Peter said. C.S. Lewis on the issue said, maybe the really big ones are easy to forgive, but it's the constant, incessant ones, the same thing by the same person day in and day in out. That's the real tussle of forgiveness. Maybe that's true. I, I tend to think that in all ways, uh, they can all be difficult. But bitterness can easily set in and corrupt our hearts even more as we, as we ruminate and on the, the bitterness or on the insult, the betrayal, and the pain. So let's think back now to the parable. And we're going to tie the parable and this passage from Genesis regarding Joseph's lives uh, together for the glory of God and for our joy uh, that in Christ we might forgive as becomes the followers of Jesus. So number one, if you're someone who's taking notes and want to write some things down, number one, when there's something that you need to forgive regarding someone else, the first step, I believe, is to consider the ledger we have before a holy God. Not a holy God, the holy God. We really need to pause and consider our own depravity. Our own sin from our very first. And I don't mean from the first time you lied to your, to your mother about something. The fact that we were born in iniquity. We were born breathing, kicking and screaming sin. When we look at ourselves from the eyes of a holy God and consider that, the Bible says that even our good deeds are as what? Filthy rags, right? Sin gets its way into everything that we do so that even when we would try to do something good, somewhere in there, there's always some kind of a sinful uh, motivation. It's never lurking far, far beneath the surface. You might go, well, I'm, I'm not so sure I, I, I would think about that, but I think it's there even if we're not even cognizant of it. Every thought, every word, 
and deed that has not been done from a motivation of love of God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength than has been for our own self-serving, idolatrous selves. And that's who we are. Friends, the debt of 10,000 talents is only the beginning. When, when I was a, uh, a youth pastor, uh, we served outside of, um, not too far from Stone Mountain, Georgia, where I grew up. And I remember one of my friends, he was talking on, on this topic. And he said, if every day in your suffering eternally, there was a bird that visited Stone Mountain and sharpened its beak on the granite of Stone Mountain. And one day, when that granite mountain has been reduced to a pebble, on that day you get released from your, from your suffering. That would be hope. Friends, I think I'm going to butcher this uh, quote by Charles Spurgeon. If someone thinks ill of you, don't be mad at them. They're not even half right. <laughs> We're much worse. And we are. When we consider the enormity of our sin before God that through Christ has been canceled. One of my favorite parts of Reformed worship is when uh, the minister, and this is the church when we were in Seneca, South Carolina when I was in college and seminary. We would read through a confession of faith and there would be the pardon of sin. Now, the minister was not himself pardoning us. He can't do that. Rather, he announces the pardon of sin. That was actually like my favorite part of the whole service. It's when I was reminded, yet again as I need to be, that as great as my sin, God's grace is still greater. And when we consider the grace that has been given to us and the handful of denarii of sin that someone has done to us. And I'm not saying these things aren't real and hurtful. Folks, I genuinely believe that Joseph was hurt in all this. As any person would be. Even a good man. Again, Joseph was a good man. He resisted Potiphar's wife. He was a good steward all that was given to him. But was Joseph Jesus? And the answer is no. I love that saying. He may have been the best man, but he was at yet still what? At best, a man. This was painful. This was real. People can and do sin against us and hurt us in ways that are sometimes extremely hard. One of my the pleasures uh, during my time of doing ministry in the uh, prison was we did two classes on forgiveness. We had two iterations of it. They're about six weeks each. And as these inmates discussed with me the transgressions, the things that had been done to them, particularly um, when they were young, to a man, every single one of them was, when the, was in the context of a family. Every single one of them. And they had to sit there and think through what God through Christ had done for them so that they could in turn reach and find forgiveness for the ones who had hurt them. And towards the end of that course, our time with them, you could physiologically see a change in countenance. It's like they'd each lost about 10 or 15 pounds easily 
there was a change. When God commands us to forgive, it is for His glory, it is for His honor, but it is also for our good. More of that in a moment, if I think of it. Number two. Let me finish, hold on. If we refuse to forgive, then it is doubtful that we have tasted God's forgiveness at all. So if you find yourself saying, I'm, uh, there's no way I'm, I'm going to forgive this individual for this thing no matter what. Friends, let me give you caution. Please, please hear me on this. The danger of that is that it's at least possible that you've not tasted God's forgiveness. So please dwell on that. Number two, we live in a world of wickedness. It should not surprise us when it enters our lives. But it never does so apart from the sovereignty of our Heavenly Father. I hope that's a comfort. There are times I don't have answers when in His wisdom something happens. Let's go there for a second. But I'd rather have that than a God in heaven who can't do anything about it. Who says, yes, I know I'm God, but what am I supposed to do? Tell me, which things work together for the good of those who love God and called according to His purpose? All things. The Scripture says, all things work together for the good. Joseph, by the grace and revelation of God, had the right perspective. They did not ask for forgiveness, but he forgave them anyway. Now, I know it says that they they sought out forgiveness, but they sought it only through a lie and out of fear. And he correctly says to them, what you intended for evil, he names it. He doesn't say to them, well, you didn't know what you were doing. They knew what they were doing, did they not? Or you didn't mean any harm in it. Did they mean harm in it? A hundred percent. They acknowledge and he acknowledges that they transgressed, sinned against, and intended evil towards him. But Joseph saw the hand of God moving with redemptive purpose for the salvation of many. In our lifetime, we may not see a direct and glorious purpose behind the sins that we endure from others. We may not see it, but what do we know for certain? We do know that we've been promised that all things work together for the glory, for His glory and our good. So, when asked why do we forgive, one, we always forgive for and unto the glory of God. That's the first thing. Number two, we do it in obedience to Him. Three, we do it in recognition that is for our good. Speaking of that, people that have practiced forgiveness, according to several clinical studies, sleep better. Do you know that? Do you want to get some good sleep? Start forgiving. Do you have high blood pressure? Start forgiving. Did you know that they have tied unforgiveness to cardiac disease? Sure, think through it. Have you ever met someone in the hospital with a suffering heart and you spend a little time talking to them, you dig into their lives a bit and you find unbelievable hurt and trauma buried deep within that that they are still wrestling with? It hit me right between the eyes at Madigan Army Hospital talking with a patient one time. Couldn't believe it. Why do people often turn to alcoholism? Is it just because it tastes good? Or is it because they are trying to medicate a pain in their hearts? 
They often do that. In fact, in part of the 12-step process, forgiveness is a key component of that. Also, other studies have shown that when uh, uh, patients who go through a substance abuse program, if they also include with that a, a course on forgiveness, are three times more likely not to return to substance abuse. Why are they doing the drugs? It's to dull the pain that they've experienced. So that when God commands us to forgive, it is for His glory, but it's for your good. It's for your peace of mind. It's also for your heart, your physical heart on top of that. But your very lives. So that when you encounter other people, I love this term, transference. That's when you hit somebody else because someone else hit you and you're still mad at that person. Um, I've been in a counseling situation before. I'm talking to someone and all of a sudden they'll get mad and I'll say, are you talking to me or that, or that person? And in their mind, who are they talking to? The other person. There are so many layers to this where God is saying the path of, of glorifying me and enjoying me also leads to your blessing. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 through 32, Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. And one of my favorite quotes from St. Augustine, Forgive the bad man his injustice against you, lest there be two bad men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that, Lord, you would help us to be those who enjoy and delight more and more in the grace that's been given to us and the forgiveness of our sins. So that, Lord, we may praise you all the more for it, but also so that as, Lord, people sin against us, that we would be the more ready, prepared, eager, and happy to forgive. And may, be the, may this, Lord, be the kind of thing that when the world looks at us, they say, now there's something different. And they ask about it. Lord, I pray 